Okay, so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 tonight. So if you're new to the scriptures, you don't have to turn very far. Genesis is the first book, and you find it at page about 1. So that's where we're going to be tonight. Um, as you turn or pull up Genesis 1, uh, I want to ask you to just think for a minute, what story do you love? Like, what stories or story do you love? Go for yeah. Goldilocks and the Three Bears, great story. Everyone, like Piper, has a favorite book, a favorite story, a favorite movie. What's your favorite story? Yeah. Well, I have a favorite movie, and that is um, the Lego Batman movie. Lego Batman movie, also a good story. Lego Batman. All right, so Goldilocks and Three Bears, Lego Batman. Everyone has a favorite book, a favorite play, a favorite story. The first story I brought, I brought the first story that I remember loving as a kid. It's called I Am a Bunny. Okay? It's, it's a riveting tale, let me tell you, about Nicholas who lives in a hollow tree and uh, walks through various seasons, uh, ending in winter when he curls up in his hollow tree and dreams about spring. And apparently I used to ask my parents if they could tuck me in like Nicholas and they did not let me sleep in a hollow tree because that'd be illegal and they'd get arrested and stuff for child, uh, you know, mismanagement. But they did let me, you know, pretend that I was a bunny. And, and as with many of us, I had an active imagination. I would immerse myself in the various stories, starting with Nicholas. Uh, this is an old tattered book. This is the one my parents used to read to me. They gave it to Travis. Um, and I read it to him now. And so as I grew up, um, after I graduated from Nicholas, I spent longer than I should have, thinking I was Peter Pan, um, then moved into like boxcar children and eventually into Hardy Boys and this kind of stuff. And, and again, I would, always, I would always immerse myself into the story. I always wanted to be the character that I was reading, the character in my favorite story. Is this, this true of you? Yes. Yes, all right. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's just true for kids. I think all of us... Kids and adults alike, we still immerse ourselves into whatever story is most important to us. Fair? And maybe it's not a fictional story anymore, although maybe it is. You know, I don't pretend I'm James Bond. You pretend you're James Bond. Like, maybe, maybe we still do that. But, but, but even if there's other stories that are less fictional than that, we still immerse ourselves into them. And, and that story shapes our very life. Okay? So, so as one example, I heard a quote last couple of weeks that said, everything in America now falls under the umbrella of politics. Everything in America now falls under the umbrella of politics. We're not going to debate. We're not going to get into that. But if, if that's true, and it might be, the, then the overarching story that we tell ourselves is one of politics, and that shapes the rest of our lives, and everything else becomes the dominoes that fall based on that story. Or maybe your story revolves around money, not having enough of it, wanting more of it, wanting to do more with the money you do have. And if that's the case, then that is what we shape our lives around. Your story might revolve around a job. It might revolve around pursuing whatever version of your best life now it is. It might revolve around you having perfect kids. And on and on and on we could go. Whatever story is important to us is what shapes our life. Is that fair? Like literature, some of the stories that shape our life are fiction. So you probably won't win the lottery. You probably won't make the right investment and become the next Jeff Bezos and go to space next week. That's probably, probably in the realm of fiction for most of us. Um, some stories have, have at least some realm of nonfiction in them. 
Uh, like like if, if, if having a perfect child is what we shape our lives around, there is something to parents and, and households called to, to raise up and train up children in the way that they should go, to disciple children. There's some of that story that's, that's nonfiction. But there's one story that is truer than all the other stories in the world. Kids, you know what the one story is that's truer than all the other stories in the world? The Bible. The Bible. <laughs> There's unity in the spirit between these two. It's got to be true, right? <laughs> so the rest of July and August, Salt and Light in here in Fort Worth and then Restore Church, our, our sister church in Arlington, are going to kind of zoom out and trace the themes of Scripture, trace a few themes of Scripture and give an overview of the whole Bible because we see it as the truest story in the world. We have a hard time remembering sometimes that it's the truest story in the world, but for those of us who follow Jesus, we at least somewhere in our lives and our minds believe it's the truest story in the world. Mm-hmm. So there's dangers. There's a little bit of danger that comes with, doing, with, with, with walking through the Bible like this. Um, first, if you're here or if you have friends who come join us over the next few weeks who are not followers of Jesus, maybe they're doubting their faith, they're doubting, doubt, doubting Jesus, um, then there's a chance you don't believe this story is true. And I want to submit that's okay. I want to give you space in these next few weeks to be honest with wherever you're coming from. Maybe you used to have a stronger belief, and now you're questioning it. Maybe you've never fully understood the place of the Scriptures, never understood the God or the Jesus behind the Scriptures. And I want to invite you, if that's you, use these few weeks to, to press in and, and join us for these few weeks, because perhaps you'll see some of the Scripture in a light that is different to you, maybe different than you've, you've heard or assumed or seen it even taught before. And we want to ask you to, to ask your own questions throughout it. Wrestle honestly here. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you do believe the Bible is true, dot, 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 at least most of the time, if we're honest, right? And sometimes we have a hard time with that. But, but the danger for us is that, that we can check out or go like, oh, I, I know what the Bible is. I've, I've heard it. It's, it's old news to us. But I think the greatest danger is that many of us, at least those of us who are part of Salt and Light, most of us are, are used to tackling the Bible in what we're going to call little bits. We're, we're used to zooming in and, and seeing little bits of the Bible, and that's not inherently bad, but, but we're more used to maybe spending several weeks in, in one book or, or, or dwelling on one theme, and, and we're very zoomed in. And as our teaching team uh, Brad from Restore is going to be here next week. I was over at Restore this morning. As, as we have different teachers, uh, Kendrick from our church plant in Dallas is going to be joining us as well. As, as we met a couple weeks ago as a teaching team to kind of form a kind of so, some unity with all of our different perspectives um, coming together, one of, the, one of the teaching team members said, um, we often, if we do this, if we only zoom in, we can miss the forest for the trees. We can see the little bits, but, but we might miss the entirety, the, the complexity, the beauty of the Bible as one story. And by missing the one unified story of the Bible, we can, we can have a misidentified or maybe a myopic view of the heart of God. Is that fair? Um, there's two authors, uh, Mike Goheen and Craig Bartholomew, who, who say it like this. I'm going to read this. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it'll be on the screen behind me. They say, most of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits, theological bits, Moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, 
we ignore its divine author's intention to shape our lives throughout its story. All human communities, they say by contrast, all human communities live out of some story that provides a context for understanding the meaning of history, and that story gives shape and direction to their lives. Is that fair? All, all communities live under some story. There's, there's something that shapes our lives. If, pay attention to this, if we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture. A fragmented Bible can become absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture, and it will thus cease, and we will thus cease, it will thus cease to shape our lives the way that it should. And they continue, idolatry has twisted the dominant cultural story of a secular Western world. I don't think we have to look too far to believe that. If, as believers, we allow this story, rather than the Bible, to become the foundation of our thoughts and actions, then our lives will manifest not the truths of Scripture, but the lies of that idolatrous culture. And here's where they culminate this, and I, I hope you, hear, you feel a little bit of, of, uh, of caution in their words, some urgency in their words. Hence, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, in other words, we can believe the right things, Theologically orthodox, morally upright, which means we live the right way, warmly pious, even religious idol worshipers. If we don't understand the scriptures and the way they form our lives, we can become theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idolaters. And I don't know about you, but theologically orthodox, morally upright, and whatever the other one was, warmly pious idol worshipers doesn't sound like a great goal for our lives. But it might be a poignant way to describe many churchgoers in North Texas in 2021, maybe folks who have claimed to follow Jesus throughout the world in history. Here's the point. It's kind of this overview of where we're going. If the Bible fits into some other story, if we try to force the Bible into some other worldview that is our dominant story, in other words, if if some other story is more true than the Bible, then we miss the heart of the Christian life and the Christian faith. That's a big deal. And so starting today, we're going to overview the Bible, not just in theological bits, not just in moral bits, not just in devotional bits, but but to see it as the truest story in the world and as the truest story in the world, the one that we fit ourselves into, the one that shapes our entire lives. So it's a big undertaking, whole Bible in seven weeks, um, but it matters. God's story builds on itself. So be here as much as you can. Uh, dwell on these themes. And, and if you would, ask God the Spirit to shape your life around this truest story in the world as we dive into it over the next several weeks. So I'm actually going to pause and, and do that. Uh, do that right now and ask that God would, would shape our lives around that story. So will you pray with me? Father, would you do what we can't do? Would you draw us into your story in a new and fresh way? Would you help us see not just facts and not just historical pieces, although they are, not just devotional, inspirational things, although those are there as well, not just individual stories and commands, God, but would you help us see your heart and know you more in your story starting today? It's in your son's name we pray for your glory alone in our lives. Amen. 
All right, so the truest story in the world starts, as you might expect, uh, with the first page of our Bible. So Genesis 1, verse 1 will be on the screen. You can look at it as well. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, we'll stop there. Who's the story about? It's about God. That's important. It's about God. In any story, the main character matters most. Is that fair? Everything else in the story revolves around the main character. And so through Genesis 1 and 2, we're introduced to God as the main character, but this God is a personal God and also an all-powerful God. God created everything that exists, and he did so in a way that made it good and right and perfect. God is the true ruler over the universe that he made, and he lovingly provides for everything he created. That's the God we're introduced to in Genesis 1 and 2. Some of you read it coming in, and and you know some of the details of that. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you may know some of this creation story. So that was Genesis 1.1. Here goes verse 2. The earth was without form and was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day, and he called the darkness night, and there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, and let it separate waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were over the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And on and on creation goes from here. Day three, we see God creating land and the seas and vegetation. Day four, he creates the sun and moon and stars. On day five, the birds and the sea animals. And on day six, the land animals. No matter what you believe about the the timeline of creation, we can all agree creation is amazing. Yes? Like there's a reason that that the mountains and beaches do something to us. There's a reason that, that we love going to the zoo. The kids love going to the zoo to see the beauty and creativity and to to experience things that are other than us. There's precision in Genesis 1 and 2 with which God forms the earth's foundations. He's intentional, and there's beauty in so many plants and animals and ecosystems, and and you don't have to travel far to see colors and and to experience breathtaking views and to, to smell the fragrances and to hear the symphony of sound, creation is amazing. And within all of that beauty and all that mystery, I want to draw out two things for us today. First, in every day of creation, God created things that were different from other things he created on that same day. Have you thought about this? So light and dark were created, but light and darkness are, are different from each other. Land is not water, and woe be to whoever stands on the land if it decides it wants to be water all of a sudden doesn't work. Second, though, at the end of each day, God looked at what he created and he declared it to be good. It's good. All of God's creation was good. All of his creation worked together. Though though he created different things, opposite things every day, all of his creation worked together in perfect harmony for the sake of God's purposes. Everything on earth and above the earth and under the earth was in perfect relationship 
a, a unity with the rest of his creation, even though not all of God's creation was the same. Light and dark are different, but they're both good. The sun and the moon are different, but they're both needed. As their distinct functions work together, God, the main character of the story, is shown to be more glorious and glorified. The point is that there's unity and diversity throughout the first six days of God's creation. There's beauty when things that are different come together and admit that they're insufficient by themselves. They need the gifts of something unlike itself. That's not new. That's part of God's design. And the same theme that's true in days one through six of God's creation is also true in the culmination of God's creation. At the end of day six, he creates humankind. People, you and I, have a vital role to play in God's truest story of the world. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26. After all the other things that God created, God said, in and among the Trinity, Father, Spirit, and Son together, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, uh, him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God also said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird in the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And again, it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it wasn't just good anymore, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. All right, I want to pause for a sec and, and, and talk about this culmination of God's creation in humankind. So from, from the verses we just read, or those of you who read Genesis 1 and 2 coming in to this week, what do you know? It's going to be a question up on the screen. What do you know about how and why God created men and women? What did you just hear? What did God tell us about why and how he created us? To have dominion. And dominion, if I can pause on that for just one sec, because it matters for the rest of our teaching, dominion is a very misunderstood kind of concept today. Today, it feels like very closely tied to like domination, right? To, to conquer things. That's not what God intended here. The, the word dominion was to, to have some responsibility on God's behalf, but not to conquer it in the sense of like being domineering, but rather to help it thrive. Adam and Eve were to cultivate a garden, to have, to, have, to have a little bit of authority and responsibility delegated to them in order to, to tell the story of the main character, to image forth God's image by displaying God's loving care for his creation. It's important to reframe that for the rest of the story. 
but we were man and woman created to have dominion in that sense, to help cultivate creation. What else? How did God create us? Why did God create us? In his image. Yeah, there's something distinct about that that is different from all the rest of creation. We're all made in the imago Dei, the, the image of God. What else? If anybody read ahead in Genesis 2, you see how God formed man and woman? We just, we just sang, it's your breath in our lungs. That was never more true for anyone than it was for Adam, right? Who, after God formed him out of the dust, breathed the breath of life into him and then pulled Eve out of Adam's rib. Anything else stand out? Like there's this deeply personal nature to how God created man and woman. And then God provides everything they needed. He, he gave them breath. He gave them life. He gave them all the food, everything they needed. So let me summarize it by saying this. People, then and now, we're created by God. We're not the main character, but we're supporting characters in this story. We're storytellers of the main character. And people then and now are like the rest of creation in that God created us unique and different, but all of us are good. I want to submit that, that like the rest of the days of creation, God would be less glorified if we all tried to be the same. If we all tried to be uniform, if we all tried to be one gender, one race, ethnicity, one worldview, if we tried to deny the beautiful distinctions that God made us with, he'd, he'd be less glorified. The different gifts, if we tried to all say, no, the only gift that matters is the one that I like most, God would be less glorified because we wouldn't display the myriad, so many millions of different aspects about God. Rather, God is more glorified when all of us in all of our differences come together for God's purposes, not in uniformity, but in unity. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that there's a perfect relationship that we have with God, with other people, and with non-human creation. And, and so I want to pause, because again, we're not just talking about this as a series of facts, but, but I want to invite us into this. Think for a minute, what are some elements of creation that God has entrusted to you? What are, what are some things in this earth that God has entrusted you? And, and, and whatever comes to mind, what would it look like to cultivate whoever those people are that God has entrusted to you or whatever little plot of land God has entrusted to us or whatever hours and days and years he gives us? What would it look like to cultivate whatever God gave you in a way that displays God's care for his creation and tells the story of God in those relationships and in that place, whether, whether the plot of land or whether the family or whether whatever else that God gave you is big or small? What would it look like? What would it look like to make our homes and, and, and to disciple our kids and to enter our jobs and to, to craft our yards that look a little bit more like the kingdom of God by our words and our works? Have you ever thought about that before? Like I, I grew up on a farm outside of Weatherford, Texas. I, we raised sheep and goats and horses and had one cow. It's my sister's cow. Um, there's a difference between caring well for those animals and, and not. In the same way, now we live, most of you, some of you have been to our house, we live on a tiny lot. Um, and yet, uh, Jess, my wife, has, has cultivated this beautiful kind of garden in, in our backyard. And, and she loves being out there. And more than that, we try to cultivate our, our kids and, 
and help our neighbors in the school that our kids go to see a little bit more of the kingdom of God. We don't do that perfectly, but just to help make it tangible, what would it look like for you to bring peace and beauty and thriving into your marriage, into to, to a roommate relationship, into the offices and apartments and homes? What would it look like to do that, even if it's hard to tell God's story there? What would it look like to do that, even if people there are hard to love? Because again, the Bible is not just a collection of facts and bits. If this is the truest story in the world, then it's got to be the story that informs and forms our everyday actions and shapes our life. We have a role to play, and it's been that way since Genesis 1. So there's a couple other important notes to, to bring out on the first pages of, of God's story. There's, there's way more than we can cover today, obviously. But the, the, the second to last thing I want to mention is that God rested. In Genesis 2, starting in verse 1, if we go to Genesis 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host in them, all the, all, the, all the creation within it. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. God didn't need to sleep. He didn't need to rest, but he chose to rest. And his rest was not the end of his relationship with creation. In fact, it was the start of his relationship with all he had made. Genesis 2 shows us that God would enter Eden and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's this beautiful image. In, in creation, Adam and Eve carried out God's work. Today we might say they did what God did. But they also just rested and dwelled with God and enjoyed being in His presence. They, they spent time with God. They became more like God. And this is important for us. As we image God's image into the world, can I say it like that? As we image God's image into the world, work is from God. It's good, and it glorifies God. And also, as we image God's image into the world, rest, which is trusting God to provide over ourselves, is also from God and is good and glorifies God. Again, two different things coming together in unity, both good. And then finally, we note that God put two trees in this garden put a lot of trees in the garden, but there's two special trees in this garden. And God gave Adam and Eve a command as it relates to these trees. So look down, Genesis 2, verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, as was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go to verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. These trees will matter a lot next week as the story of God unfolds and as we see kind of an act two that follows act one of creation. But these trees also matter for today because, again, in, in God giving trees and then giving Adam and Eve a command around these trees, we're reminded, again, that Adam and Eve are not the main characters. 
They, they have dominion. They have a role to play in the truest story in the world, but they are not the ultimate authority over their lives. Rather, Adam and Eve and every human sense, whether they believe it or not, whether you believe it or not, every human is created by God to exist in perfect relationship with God's creation, with one another, and with God. And we're also created to exist under God's loving care and authority. And if Adam and Eve obeyed God, and if we obey God, there's peace and enjoyment of the life that God gives us. But if Adam and Eve, and if we disobey our ultimate authority, the main character of our story, then God's promise rings true, we will surely die. And it's on that ominous and somber cliffhanger that we leave the biblical text for this evening and close with a few implications before we pick up the next act of the story next Sunday. But as we close, I do want to just invite you to consider three implications of this first act of the truest story in the world. The first one we've said, but I just need us to, to, to dwell in it, so I'm going to say it again more overtly. The first implication, I think I might have these on the screen. I'm not sure. Should we find out? Let's find out. Okay, we do not. Okay. Um, the first implication, though, is that God is the main character of history that was true in Genesis 1, and that's true now. That matters as we think about how we shape our lives. We are not the main character of our own stories. That's objectively true, but man, it makes some of us bristle, doesn't it? To, to think that we are not the main character goes against the inherent self-centeredness within us, and it goes against the inherent self-centered society that surrounds us. People's original relationship with God was a relationship of worship, not just singing, thank you for leading us, but not just singing, but rather a whole life that was geared toward God rather than any other created thing. Our original relationship with God was one of worship, it was one of respecting the authority of the true king and creator of the universe, and it was one of cooperating with God on his mission. And so you'll see a, a question in this week's email based on that, what, what would it mean if we actually believe that God is the main character of our lives? What, what would change about our posture and goals and the things we would pursue if, if we actually lived as if God was the greatest authority in our lives because he's the author and giver of lives and we are merely the storytellers of a better story? Have you thought about that before? What would change if we actually lived as if God is the main character in our lives? It leads to a second implication. <laughs> the fact that you and I are created in God's image, please hear me on this. The fact that you and I are created in God's image is the most glorious characteristic that any of us can claim. It's better than any of our intellect. It's better than any of our looks. It's better than any of our strength. It's better than any of our successes. The main character of the story, God, in all of his wisdom and power and sovereignty and goodness, invites you into a perfect relationship with him and gives you his very 
image. Why would it matter that we're created? We're not creators. We didn't come out of nothing. Why would it matter that we're created? But not only created, we're created in the very image of God. To image God to the world around us. That deeply matters. The second question that you'll see in the email is why does it matter that you're created, but created in the image of God? To image him forth into the world around you, your household, your neighborhood, your work, your school, whatever it may be. And, and what would it take to believe that that is the defining characteristic of your life? If I can ask it another way, what else would have to die? What else would have to die for us to see that as the primary characteristic of our lives? Third, and finally, don't miss this. The first pages of our Bible show us how God intended creation to be. Like, I don't, I don't know if in our, in our wildest imaginations we could fully grasp the goodness of God's initial creation. There's such beauty and harmony and joy and pleasure. There's no pain, no evil, no death. And so another question is, how could you steward whatever bit of creation God has given you for God? And how can we cultivate and restore the earth and restore relationships and make it look a little bit more like the kingdom of heaven? What would it look like to try to grasp by the spirit of God that Ben led us as a reminder of earlier? What would it look like to try to restore a little bit of a glimpse of life as God intended it to be? Because there's one author who says, like, today we think it is normal to face suffering and disappointment and death. We, we, we say, well, stuff just happens. That's just the way it is. But Genesis 1 and 2, church, says no. That's not just the way that it was supposed to be. Like, we have no concept of what is truly normal as God originally intended normal to be. Everything is skewed. Our relationship with the physical world is skewed. There's death and fires and 120 degrees in Vancouver, British Columbia, and it froze in Texas in February, and there's fires and tornadoes. Like, the, the, the relationship with our, our physical earth is skewed. Our relationship with other people are skewed. We're all created in God's image, but who hasn't seen some form of broken relationship, and we're all recovering, hopefully starting to recover from deep divisions. And of course, our relationship with God is deeply skewed. Suffice it to say, we don't get to walk in Eden like Adam and Eve did with their creator God. But if God is the main character and this story is the truest story in the world, then everything in God's created world, people, non-human creation, time, work, rest, relationships, everything, everything in God's created world was created to be very good and in perfect relationship as God originally intended. And also, everything in God's created world, people, non-human creation, work, rest, time, everything, will, listen to me, will one day be restored to the very goodness and perfect relationship that God originally created it to be. One day, God's definition of normal will be normal again. 
And once that day comes, it'll be normal forever. And until that day, salt and light, we yearn for life to be something like God intended. Do you yearn for that? We, we long for a future restoration to a world that looks something like Genesis 1 and 2. And the beauty is that we can try by the power of God's spirit to give a glimpse of God's original normal in big or small ways in our everyday relationships with people, with God, with non-human creation, at work, at play, in our homes, whatever it may be. We can tell God's story and we can image forth God's image in our everyday lives. Amen? It's that hope, the, the future return to our original state, it's that hope that becomes one aspect that we celebrate and declare as we take communion. So if you want to grab your, your little communion elements here, if you didn't get these, they're in the back, and uh, you can grab one. But that hope is one aspect of what we declare and celebrate as we take communion. If you're new to this, communion is, is a family meal for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, and we're declaring the hope that's within us. The other aspect, the other, one of the other things that we declare and celebrate in communion asks us to fast forward in this story. So a little spoiler alert in the story of God here. We fast forward to the only human on earth who did live his entire life in perfect relationship with God and other people and all of God's creation, and who did perfectly image forth God to the world and did what Adam and Eve didn't do, even as that world despised and rejected him. Church, our Lord Jesus, after living a perfect life, the life that God intended for all people to live since Genesis 1, that Lord Jesus died to restore us to God, to conquer the brokenness, and he rose to usher in the very kingdom of God and the only hope that we have to give glimpses of a better kingdom and a better normal. Our Lord Jesus will return one day to restore everything on earth and reign over all of creation in its original form for all of eternity forever. Is that good news? That's what we proclaim, church. That's what we yearn for as we celebrate the climax of the truest story in the world, Jesus' death and his resurrection. So if you will, take your bread-like thing and hold it up, and we say together, this is Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. As we open the juice, we say, this is the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, for the conquering of all brokenness, and for the promised restoration of a pure and restored life and a pure and restored creation. Father, we thank you for your story. We thank you for the way that you created us. We thank you for the, the beauty that exists in this room and in our world. We lament the brokenness, Lord, but I ask that you would help us just kind of dwell in the beauty of your creation and what that means for us this week. It's so easy to immediately go to the brokenness, and we'll get there in your story. But would you work in our hearts by the power of your spirit to help us see what creation means for us? Would you form us into your image more? Would you draw us in? Would you shape our lives around your story this week, tonight, and always? Amen.